We um, have note sheets coming out, so if you need a Bible, make sure you raise your hand, and our guys would love to bring a Bible to you so you can have that with you as we study together through God's Word. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. I, uh, I want to praise the Lord for uh, the preaching that happened when I was out of town. We're grateful for Paul's faithfulness in the Word, for our brother Ross and our brother Stephen Taylor, who um, both contributed on Sunday evenings. Uh, the pulpit of this church is for the ministry of the Word. It is not for the promotion of any one man. And so, as a church, we're going to be careful um, only to allow those who are fit to teach to enter the pulpit, but we will also be sure that the pulpit is about the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and it's not about the promotion of any one uh, individual. There are too many churches where we see... uh, pastors becoming like celebrities these days. And so we're grateful that God has given to us a broad range of of men who are able to teach and who've been gifted in that way. And so we're thankful for the opportunities that they have been given and their willingness to take those opportunities. I especially am thankful for that in light of this wonderful book that we've been studying through, 1 Corinthians, where in the first chapter and the third chapter, Paul brings to attention uh, the, the Corinthians who struggled with this idea of the cult of personality. Some of them really loved Apollo. Some of them really loved Peter. Some of them were fans of Paul. And so uh, we see from this letter itself that that's not a, a proper attitude to have, that we should love the work of the Lord uh, no matter who is doing it. We should be grateful for uh, the fact that people who preach well must, by definition, be people who put Christ front and center. So let's rejoice in the, the riches of of a resource that God has given to us as a church in that regard. So open up your Bibles to chapter 10. We have come to the conclusion of a large section of this letter that we've been studying through. Chapters 8 through chapter 10 address the freedoms that a believer has in practical everyday life and the appropriate ways to exercise that freedom. It is for freedom that we have been set free. So how do we make good use of that freedom? How do we rejoice in the freedom that God has given Before Paul switches gears and tries to tackle some different pressing issues that are going on in the church of Corinth, starting in chapter 11, he's going to wrap up this section on Christian freedom, and he's going to advance their understanding of the the topic just a little bit further. And so if you've got your, your Bibles, I'm going to be reading starting in verse 23. And we're going to read a little bit past the end of the chapter. Uh, I think this is one of those instances where the, uh, the men who put the chapter separations did the best job they could, but they weren't perfect in that. And so we're going to read all the way through to the first verse of chapter 11. Starting in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. 
just as I try to please everyone and everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let's bow our heads together and thank the Lord for this passage and for the understanding that I trust His Holy Spirit will give to us regarding it. Lord, we know that our lives as your creation are not inconsequential, God. You did not just create us to leave us to our own devices. Father, there are are things you would accomplish in us. You have made your decrees. You have revealed your will in Scripture. And the, the Bible plainly tells us that your church is to be a people after your heart, a people obedient to your commands, a people who reflect your truth and your love. And we desire, as your people, to do that well, Lord God. We also confess that we don't always do that well. And so we pray that the continual ministry of your word, not just that goes out of this pulpit, but in our regular personal times of reading, as we pray and you bring to mind scriptures that are important to what we're going through day by day, Lord, that you would sanctify your people, that you would make us more Christ-like in the ways that we exercise our decisions, our choices, our freedoms, Lord God. Help us to rejoice in the fact that there is no one as free as you. You are ultimately able to do everything you desire to do. There is none of us who can stop you or can ruin your plans. And so I thank you, Lord God, that we have that assurance today and that we serve a God who will not be stopped. So continue to do your will, Lord, and until you return... Please make us useful for the accomplishment of your decrees and desires. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul had addressed the topic of Christian freedom with two specific issues in mind amongst this Corinthian congregation. One was consumption. Should a Christian eat food that might have been offered to a god, a pagan false deity in the marketplace at some point? Should they refrain from meat altogether? in order to avoid the possibility of eating that meat? So consumption, what should we eat? Secondly, participation was important for them to understand as well here. Should a Christian take part in these pagan festivals, these huge meals and gatherings and celebrations that were so common throughout the year in the province of Corinth? These festivals often celebrated some false god, usually of Roman persuasion. Should the Christians participate in these things since they were thrown in honor of these gods, not gods. So there are several clarifying principles that we've already learned from Paul regarding these two questions about the specific details of Corinthian freedom. First of all, we've learned that there are no rival gods, that there is only one God. We rejoice in that. We proclaim it. uh, We trust it. There is only one God. Yahweh stands alone. But it is true that there are some who are young in the faith that are not quite totally clear on that yet. They might see Yahweh as the great God, but they might be confused into thinking that there are other rival gods or or semi-gods or demi-gods that compete against him. So Paul clears the air and makes it clear to us that there is no other God, that Godhood is the sole property of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. No one else is like him. He is holy. Nevertheless, Paul also teaches them that there are spiritual forces of darkness that we need to be aware of that sometimes work in and behind these devices of temptation that afflict us day by day. And so he wants them to see that these festivals, these pagan temple festivals, which offered opportunities not only to eat food, but also to commit idolatry, 
to fall into sinful lusts and the habits of the flesh, these things need to be avoided with caution because of the spiritual warfare that was being inflicted upon the Corinthians there. These people who came out of pagan lifestyles of licentiousness and, and unholiness might be drawn back into them if they were to participate in these festivals. Paul has explained that food itself does not condemn us. It has no magical properties. We can eat what we want. In fact, all things come from the Lord, and so all of them have been sanctified. We are able to enjoy whatever God has put into this planet, but we don't have the freedom to cause a weaker brother to stumble. Again, not everyone is mature in the same way. So in the interest of preserving those who have perhaps a weak conscience, we must be willing to set aside rights and privileges that we have under the umbrella of Christian freedom so that we're not doing harm to one another. By way of example, Paul gave up his own rights to financial compensation for the work that he did for the church. He gave that up, even though it was a right to him, because he didn't want anyone to think that his work being done for these churches was done simply for the gain, simply for the finances. So he exercised his freedom to give up his freedom as an example to these Corinthians. And he's urging them to do something similar in regards to the way that they exercise their freedom in eating and participating in these festivals. Our desire to see the lost saved and the saved growing in discipleship and maturity should be magnitudes greater than our desire to please ourselves or to secure our own way, to exercise our freedoms. Make no mistake, the secret to helping the Corinthians grow in purity and maturity is not to strip away all the freedoms that Jesus just died to earn for them. And so Paul, throughout this letter, makes a consistent effort to remind these Corinthians, I'm not doing away with Christian freedom. I'm trying to help you understand the greatest expression of your freedom. You are now free to do as God has called you to do and has equipped you to do. Freedom is not bad. We should rejoice in our freedoms. Some examples of this is in chapter 4, Paul says that it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. We are free from being worried about what everybody in the world thinks about us. Our true judge is God. So let us rejoice in that freedom, that we don't have to please everyone, that we need to be focused on what the Lord wants for us. This is fundamental to Paul's theology of justification by grace and not by works. Paul assured us that his, this freedom extends into some of the most practical aspects of our lives, such as our diet. In chapter 8, verse 8, it says, Food will not condemn us to God. We are no off no worse off if we eat it, no better off if we do. Especially in light of the tendency of Jewish converts to Christianity to try to impose the Jewish dietary laws which had passed away onto the people of Christ, Paul is diligent to drive home the point that we're free to eat all the things that God has put before us. In chapter 9, Paul asks the question, am I not free? And so he's establishing this standard, don't I also have freedom as well? He, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus, also had certain freedoms that had been won for him on the cross. And so he points out that the freedoms that ministers have, ministers are able to take a wife if she is godly, to, to raise up a family, and then to work hard and be paid for that work so that they can support that family. And then in 9.19, he says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. He voluntarily subjects himself to the needs of others and puts their needs above his own. So 
Paul is not subject to the court of opinion, but he exercises his freedom to care for those who are worse off than him and that might have a weaker faith than he does. He doesn't have to agonize that some exercise of his personal freedom will cause him to lose his salvation. He is secure in the Lord. This is another freedom that we rejoice in. But since God has loved him, Paul is compelled to love others. Even if that means laying down some of the the rights and freedoms that he might otherwise enjoy. So personal freedom is a valuable gift from God. It's not something that we should just give away. But we would be making a mistake if we prioritize our personal freedom over other more important values in the kingdom of God. Our concept of freedom must be defined by the Lord, not by the fallen world around us. We celebrate Independence Day and we are grateful to live in a nation that still has a degree of freedom that we enjoy every day. But true freedom comes when we bow our hearts to the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, when our life is subject to the one who rules all things. And then the slave master of sin is defeated once and for all, and we are free to worship and to live in the righteous ways that he has ordained for us. Freedom for the Christian is not the right to pursue whatever we might want. It is the right to pursue whatever is best. And we don't decide what is best. That is God's job. When Adam and Eve partook of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they were essentially saying, I will decide for myself what is good and what is wrong. I'm going to put to the side the things that God has proclaimed about right and wrong. I'm going to to do that work for myself. And in doing so, committed a grave error, tried to be what only God can be, and mankind has suffered ever since. It is under the salvation of Christ that we come back in the proper order of creation where God is the one who declares to us what is good, what is evil. And we say amen to his declaration. Part of my responsibility as an elder here at First Family Church is to oversee the food pantry ministry. And so every week I have to sift through about 20 different emails that describe various recalls that have happened for the foods that have been donated to us. There's a broad network of information for those who provide foods to the food bank And if something comes up as uh, spoiled or has a problem with packaging or has a a wrong label, so someone might have an allergy reaction, I have to read through all those emails and make sure that it hasn't messed up any of the stuff that's been given to us. See, manufacturers have lots of freedom in America about what they produce and why they produce it. But there are industry standards for safety within which they have to exercise that freedom. So, I don't know if you saw in the news yesterday, but Tyson Chicken announced the recall of over 8.5 million pounds of pre-cooked chicken products that could possibly be linked to a listeria outbreak. Now, these kinds of problems prop up when there's a failure in quality control at the factories. Typically, somebody didn't do their job properly and something didn't get uh, didn't get frozen right or didn't get checked properly and it somehow made it out and into the marketplace. So freedom is is not license. It is the latitude to act as we desire, but that freedom must coincide with who God has made us to be in Christ. Not all expressions of our freedom would fit what we have now become in Jesus. And so as we seek to rejoice in our freedom and to honor the great price that was paid to win that freedom for us, we need to think carefully about how we use it. We need to exercise a kind of quality control that helps us use our freedoms in a way that are consistent 
with our character as Christians. And so the verses that we are examining today offer us three essential steps of quality control that will help us not to abuse or misuse our freedom in a way that is detrimental, not to ourselves, not to the testimony of our Savior, and not to our fellow Christians. And so three filters through which our freedoms must be passed before we decide to exercise them. Number one, will this expression of freedom, as I think about my ability to do something or not do something, say something or stay silent, will this expression of freedom result in edification? In edification. This passage begins with a phrase that should ring a bell for us. It should be somewhat familiar because Paul has already used these exact words to make a similar point earlier in the letter. So in chapter 6, verse 12, and it was a while ago, but Paul said this. He said, all things are lawful for me. You get that pattern there? But not all things are helpful, verbatim, what he's saying here in chapter 10. Then he changes it a little bit. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In that instance, Paul did not want to be dominated by the thoughts and and ideas of others. He's pointing out that we can be dominated by anxieties over what is or isn't acceptable to eat. He urged the Corinthians to recognize that food itself isn't holy or unholy, and putting unnecessary laws on ourselves is not only counterproductive, but it is a threat to the freedoms that we have in Christ that should be protected. So he uses that same construct here again in verse 23. But he adds a different dimension to the last half. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You might be using a different translation than the ESV, or scripture might say, not all things edify. In the original Greek, the term that Paul uses here is oikodome. And oikodome means to construct a building, to fortify and make strong, or to encourage another person. And so we accomplish that in many different ways, don't we? When we edify one another, that means that we are doing something active to encourage them towards Christ. We are strengthening their faith in Him by showing His greatness to them. We are pointing them to the Word of God, which is the foundation upon which our faith is built. We are reminding them of the promises of God that are many and sure, We are reminding them that even our suffering is for good because we serve a sovereign God who uses all things for His glory. So there are so many ways that we might edify one another. This is essentially a construction uh, term. So when we think about the church, it it is a people who are in the process of ever becoming stronger and stronger in Christ Jesus. Our nation witnessed a great tragedy this past week that was a vivid illustration of the importance of edification, didn't we? Champlain Towers is a beachfront apartment building in Miami with about 156 units. The parking lot was on the bottom floor of the structure, and then above the parking lot was an indoor swimming pool. You can imagine how much weight is contained in a large swimming pool of that nature. And then there's residential levels above that. The concrete girders that supported the great weight of the pool's water had begun to show signs of fatigue over time. And they have documents now that they have unearthed showing that there were some statements made that repairs needed to happen. But that edification process had not yet begun. And sadly, on June 24th at 1.25 a.m. in the morning, the supporting structure began to fail and it collapsed 
triggering a giant chain reaction, sending a full third of the 12-story building crashing to the ground. So edification is very, very important. We have read in other places in Scripture, particularly in the book of 1 Peter, that we don't have a temple like they used to have up on a mountain somewhere that was a building that you go to. Rather, we, like living stones, are being built into the temple of God. The Spirit does not reside in the holiest of holies anymore. We have become, in a sense, the holiest of holies ourselves as the Spirit of God is carried with us wherever we go. But there is definitely a corporate element to this. One brick does not a temple make. And so we, as the people of God, are being built together under the command of God, in the direction of Christ, to to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, our Savior, in the world. And so we need to be edified. We need to be strengthened. We need to understand this Jesus that we are proclaiming. We need to have good doctrine so that we're not teaching people to walk in a way that would be in contrast to what God has proclaimed for us in His Word. Verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. In other words, there are many things that we might exercise our freedom to do that will not result in either our own growth or the growth of others. Some actions are actively destructive to the integrity of the church, such as spreading false doctrine, abusing one another, spreading gossip about your brothers and sisters of Christ. Scripture tells us not to bite and devour one another. So some actions are actively destructive to the church, and some things are simply passively destructive to the integrity of the church. If you have a home and you live in that home, and you enjoy that home, but 10 years go by, 20 years go by, and you've never done anything to keep it up, what happens? Eventually, the plaster begins to crack, and the the roof begins to leak, and now you've got drafts coming through the windows, and the carpet is frayed and threadbare. If you don't keep that building up, it begins to fatigue, it begins to fall apart. And so when we don't actively pursue the Lord, if we are not abiding in Him regularly, We fail to love one another. We lack consideration for one another as brothers and sisters. We neglect to help one another in times of need. We don't pray for one another like we should. Then we are failing to edify God's church. Edify is directly related to terms such as sanctify and disciple. Each draws attention to the fact that while justification from sin is something that happens once and for all, there is consequent refinement that will surely follow if the justification is authentic, if it is real. We know that the wages of sin is death, right? But we can also be assured that the wages, the natural consequences of repentance and faith is growth. When God redeems us, he will make us something that we were not before. So if we're saved, we're going to be progressively made more holy as our new identity in Christ comes to bear on all aspects of our lives, our thought life, what we love, how we spend our time, the way that we use our resources, all of these will be affected by this transformation that God has brought into our lives. And this is why a failure to progress should prompt the elders of your church to help a church member examine their heart, to see if their confession is sincere. We want to know if people really love the Lord to the best of our abilities. Now, that is ultimately only God's to know. 
But as a church, we must encourage each other on. And if we see cracks in the wall and we see drips of water coming through the ceiling, we got to do something about that. You got to act. You can't just let it go on. You can't let a brother or sister live in sin or neglect of God. If you care for them, you go after them and you talk to them about it. You edify them by pointing them again towards Christ and urging them to use their new freedom to love the Lord, which has loved them so well. In evangelism, we are not concerned only with sparing someone from judgment. We don't want to just pluck them out of the fires of hell and then send them on their way. We want more for the lost than that. We want them to know God. We want them to grow in faith and understanding of the eternal truths that can only be found in Him. We want to participate in strengthening them up. We want to have right fellowship with them, with God, with His church. Look at what 1 John 1, 3-4 says. That which we have seen and heard, John is speaking as an apostle. He's speaking about the life and the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, upon which the whole gospel is founded. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have what? Fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So we don't want to just get out of hell. That is, that is not the aim of evangelism. The aim of evangelism is to get near to God. Is to get people who are wandering far from their creator and their redeemer to understand Jesus is the only way to the Father. That they might walk in the Spirit and love Him day by day and enjoy that close union and fellowship that can only come when we pay attention to the commands of God. Friends, how much do we value the edification of others around us? Do we care about that? When we look at the body of Christ here, look around at your neighbors, at your brothers and your sisters here. When you pray to your God day in and day out, are you praying just for what you need? Or do you care about your brothers and sisters in this room? Do you rejoice when you see a greater interest in their heart for the things of God? Do you foster that and care for that in their lives? Do you encourage them? Do you see the the spark of joy when somebody wants to be near to Christ and and, and do you applaud that? Do you engage that? Do you you share in in that victory with them? When you see a brother or sister faltering, when when you see them turning away from the things of truth or picking up patterns and habits that don't in any way glorify the Lord, are you willing and love to go to them? And to care for them through that and to point them back to what is good and righteous and holy. That is true fellowship, friends. It is quite common for our faith to be so wrapped up in ourselves that we're essentially no, no help to the believers that are around us or to the lost who need to hear the testimony of Christ in us. We should examine our hearts, yes. We should think about how we are walking in the Lord. But our faith needs to get beyond us, friends. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Does that first shock you a little bit? We might expect it to say something like this. Don't only seek your own good, seek also the good of others. And the scripture does say that in different places. But here, Paul seems to ratchet it up a notch. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Is that practical at all? How can you walk through life not seeking your own good? 
It's only possible when you know that you have a savior, an advocate who is seeking your good on your behalf. That you don't, you're not responsible for your happiness anymore. Christ is. That he is the one that has anchored you to himself. That by grace, he has given you this gift of new life in him. He has already overcome your greatest enemy. You don't need to look out for yourself so much like you used to think you needed to do every day, day in and day out. But rather now, because you are secure in Christ, if you are abiding in him and walking in him, begin to help others too. Let that care extend out beyond the borders of your own faith and care about your brothers, care about your sisters. We have an advocate in Christ who strengthens us to the degree that we can care about each other this way. Now, I'm excited that we're approaching, I was doing some some looking ahead. And I hope you guys do that too. I hope that maybe once a month you pick up your Bible, you read through 1 Corinthians, just the whole letter, so that we don't lose track of what this is all about in, in unison. Because it's easy for us. I know we can sometimes take a lot of time to go over just a little bit. Like next week, we're going to do one verse. We're going to do 11.1. We're just going to really focus on what it means to have examples in the church that imitate Christ. Okay? But if we don't read through the whole book, we can lose sight of the big picture message. So I encourage you to read through it I was reading through it just uh, this past week and I was getting so excited to preach 1 Corinthians 13, which many of you know and are familiar with. It is the chapter where God says, this is what my love is like. This is what true godly love is like. And you can love like this if you're trusting in me. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. See how Paul is building these Corinthians towards that mentality, that mindset of proper love towards one another, that they should not just be so focused on their own way that they are holding so tight to their freedoms and their rights that others are suffering because they're not willing to let go to help. They're not willing to put their needs aside to care for the needs of another. Love by its very nature is edifying. It seeks to build others up and to protect them from the destructive impact of neglect. A Christian has been made free by Christ, free to be loved by God through Christ, and free to love others with the same love that has been given to them in Christ. And this is a teaching that we see consistently in Paul's letters to the churches. Romans 15, 1-3 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. He says it again in Philippians 2, verses 4 through 5. Look how he explains it here. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is edification, friends. When it says that we are to build each other up, that's what it's speaking of. To think about the well-being and the needs of those around us. Let me give you some examples of how that might look. It begins in the home. It begins in that most basic unit of community. Husbands, sanctify your wife. That's where it starts. You edify your home by sanctifying your wife. And you do that with the word of God, by teaching her the scripture, by engaging in study together with her, 
by helping her to have wisdom, by exercising the commands of Scripture to the glory of God in her presence and for her benefit. Now, this teaching of your wife, the sanctifying of your wife, washing her in the Word, it's not going to be effective if you're filthy yourself, right? Uh, that's like when I get him from the garage, sometimes I've been working on the car and, and Rosie's got chocolate over her face. I don't go over with my greasy hands and go pick her up and try to wash her off. I, I have to go wash my hands too. So we need to wash our own hearts so that we might be effective at helping others in holiness. This continues on. Raise up your children in the light, in your home. Take responsibility for that calling. There is no other relationship that you will have with the potential for more thorough influence and edification than the relationship you have with your children. For they start with a basic understanding of so very little in the world, and they are trusting you to put the basic building blocks of knowledge in their hands. So teach them Christ from the beginning. Help them to understand so they don't have to learn everything the hard way. Now, all of us are going to learn some things the hard way, friends. But let's, let's build that foundation really early in their lives. Let's bring them into church with us. Let's let them see us rejoicing as we sing together. Let's let them see us willing to pray for long extended periods of time, not just a little like little bumper sticker prayer before we eat, but, but a long extended prayer where we show them that our need for Christ is a deep need. Edify your children. But this edification extends beyond the immediate family. There are people all around us who need encouragement and who need this building up. So point them to the power of Christ. Don't impress them with all that you know. Point them to the power of Christ. And this this edification, it is better if you build on something good, right? You need a foundation that is solid. It's got to be based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the essential knowledge that we are sinners, rebels to the kingdom of God, that apart from Him, we have no hope to be what is holy and what is good that we deserve destruction because of our sin and because we've broken the law of God. Every one of us, not just the worst among us, but all of us. And that if Christ doesn't come and take on flesh, as we're going to celebrate in just a few moments at the Lord's table, if He does not come and fulfill the law in full, if He is not willing in love to suffer like a criminal on our behalf, if He is not our advocate, then we have no business trying to pray to God. We have no business approaching the throne. But in Christ Jesus... We have redemption because he, like a sacrificial lamb, has taken the sins of the elect upon his shoulders and has put them to death forever, conquering sin, conquering death, and setting free his people forever. This is the foundation that we build on, folks. He rose on that third day. Why? Because death has no power over him. And if you are his, it has no power over you either. You will also be raised up for an eternal dwelling with God forever. So we build on the right things and then we build with the right things. Okay, we don't run to the secular world and let the philosophers of the world tell us how to navigate life properly. We build with the right things. We go back to the scripture that this foundational God has given to us and we trust his direction. We don't envy the things of the world. We don't covet what the world has because they have so little compared to us in Christ. So we love the things that God has given to us. We trust them and we build with those good things. We edify each other, not with empty flattery, not with empty promises, but with the sure promises of God and with the realities that the Lord gives to us in His Word. Build on the right things, build with the right things. 
Sadly, lots of things that we are free to do have zero net edification impact. Think about how you spend your time every day. Do not let your life be flooded with the kinds of activities that neither build you up in Christ or build anyone else up in Christ. Don't sit around doing worthless activities all day long while the foundation's cracked and there's water coming through the ceiling, just hoping that it all holds together. But instead, seek the Lord. Use your time for what is eternally good. That doesn't mean we can never rest, but there's rest in the Lord. We don't rest away from the Lord. We rest in the Lord. We are grateful for things that he has given to us. We have great fellowship after church. Stick around for a while and rest with your brothers and sisters as you get to hear the stories of how God is bringing them through and encouraging them and giving them hope in the midst of the struggles that they're going through. You know, be, be a part of a Bible study. Join a small group or, or Sunday school class. We've lots of room in there. Come and, come and study the Word together with us and then encourage one another by sharing questions and ideas or what you've learned in your own personal studies. Edify one another. Before we express our freedom, let us first apply a measure of quality control to our potential behaviors. Will expressing my freedom in this way result in edification for myself? Will it result in the building up of others? The kind of edification that helps us to mature and to grow. The kind of edification that sanctifies us and that honors God. Within these verses, Paul presents a second measure of quality control. Before we act, let us ask ourselves, will this expression of freedom likely cause offense? Will this expression of freedom likely cause offense. So this is before you act. This is before you speak. You ask yourself, am I going to in some way possibly hurt another person? I, I want to build people up, but I also want to be careful that my freedoms don't tear other people down. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So we live in an extremely sensitive society today. So some clarity is needed here. To give offense does not mean to hurt someone's feelings. Okay? That, is, that is not like the worst case scenario for us, that we might say something that could hurt someone's feelings. It is better understood here in contrast to the edification that was mentioned and explained earlier. Will this do damage to the faith of the person in consideration? Will it tear them down in significant ways? Positive command, build up the brothers with your freedom. Negative command, don't use that freedom to tear others down. So some offense, be very clear on this, some offense is unavoidable. 1 Corinthians made that clear to us in the very first chapter, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block. Literally, scandala, which means a scandal, a great offense to many. We teach and preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. So if you're going to stay near to the Lord and proclaim the excellencies of His name, there will be people who get their feelings hurt about that. There will be people, when you teach the truth of Scripture, who don't want to hear what you have to say. You have to ready your heart for that. John 6, verses 30, or 53 through 55. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Great crowd had gathered. 
to hear him preach. Everybody wanted to hear the next thing that came out of Jesus' mouth. And this is what came out of his mouth. Jesus was not sitting around thinking, oh man, i got to be careful. we got to keep this message broad. Because there's people from everywhere here. And there, there's so many different cultures. I can't get too specific. I can't get too doctrinal on this stuff. we just got to make sure that everyone can get something good out of this. He didn't do that. He said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. goes on to say in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is radical language, friends. He is not tiptoeing around the sensibilities of people. He is telling it as it is. So some offense here, and this is specifically pointing to the Lord's table. We're going to talk about that particular passage and its extension in just a few moments, but it means that we must put our full faith and trust in in Christ. He has got to be the, the bread of life for us. He has got to be the living water that there is nothing more essential to our survival than trusting Christ. That is what he's saying there. And the largest portion of that crowd left when he said it. They turned around and walked away from him. Even some who had called themselves disciples up to that point turned around and walked away. It was too hard for them to handle that. Couldn't deal with it. So some offense is not only unavoidable, we cannot avoid it because it's the nature of the message. It is offensive to the sensibilities of fallen man to hear about Christ as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. So we must proclaim it, for it is the only remedy for sin. This prohibition is not against that kind of offense. It's not against intentional, or it's not against the offense that must come, right? It is against intentional and unnecessary offense. So while I'm free to eat whatever I want, I will carefully consider where my choice of food might have a negative, unnecessarily offensive impact on a brother or sister in the Lord, or on an unbeliever who's not yet in faith. And I will adjust my actions accordingly because I can afford to do that. I have got a surplus of joy in Christ. I have so many blessings in the heavenly places that what does it matter to me if I don't eat a certain thing or if I don't get to go to that certain event? Those are easy things for me to give up when I have the Lord Jesus. Let's see some examples of how this plays out in our modern day. While I am free to choose to wear what I want to wear. I want to be careful not to dress in such a way that draws proud attention to myself or that might make another person stumble in temptation as they look upon me. Okay? Is that something that we do in a way of following God's command here? That we don't want to do anything with our freedom that would cause an offense? Are we careful about the way we present ourselves to the world? While I'm free to use my finances as I see fit, They're my stewardship. They're my responsibility. Still, I need to be cautious that I don't send a message to others that might confuse them and make them stumble in trusting the things of the world and the material pleasures that are so commonly a stumbling block to many. i got to think about those things. I I don't want to give up my freedoms and how I spend my money. I still am free to spend it. But I want to consider the impact that my decisions will make. I'm free to laugh. free to enjoy humor. But my jokes should in no way cause someone to think down on anyone who bears the image of God. I don't have have a a place in my life for jokes that are going to make others think 
that a certain race or a certain age or a certain gender is somehow inferior. Right? We, we, we don't need to play with that because that could be offensive. It could give a weaker brother or sister the wrong idea of what is godly and what is holy. It could give somebody outside of the church the wrong idea about what God represents and stands for. So in the body of our text today, Paul uses a lot of his words to address scenarios that may play out in the application of this question. We point out a couple of clarifying distinctions that Paul makes. He says in verse 25, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He says, without raising questions, just go ahead and eat. What does that mean? That means, in so much as it depends on you, don't make it into a thing unless it's a thing, right? We don't need to go around like tiptoeing through a minefield of glass because we're so worried that someone's going to be offended. Guys, we, we live under grace, right? So we don't need to, to always ask, oh, is this going to hurt your feelings? Is this going to be bad? Is this? You know, there might be a specific time where you can see there could be potential offense and you ask for clarification on things. But here he says, just go ahead and eat. You know, you've got this meat, you bought it at the marketplace. You don't know if it came out of a temple or not, but you do know that there is no other God. You do know that there is no other deity in the heavens that's competing against God. That if it was sacrificed to another idol, it was sacrificed to a fake idol, and it's meat. It's just meat. So just eat the meat. It doesn't matter. Now here's here's a way that we might play this out. And, And it's interesting, as we drove across the country, almost nobody's wearing masks outside of California. That was our experience. Very, very few. But some people are still wearing masks. And so, here's the thing. You don't need to ask everyone you see if they would prefer, prefer you to wear a mask. All that typically does is set up a very awkward need to explain why you're not wearing a mask and then you feel bad about it. If somebody wants you to wear a mask, they can ask you to wear a mask and then, you know, it, according to your conscience, you can put one on or just walk away. It's, it's your choice. But we don't need to go around and take a survey of everybody's conscience. We need to act as our conscience dictates, while at the same time being cautious that there are times we know there are people that might be struggling in certain ways with things. There are times when it's good to ask a clarifying question, but we shouldn't make that the standard. Verse 27, if if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And so... You're in the house of an unbeliever. They know you're a Christian, but they've asked you to come and spend some time with them. And they put a meal before you. You don't have to say, oh, actually, you know what? I just wanted to make sure, did this come from the marketplace? Because if it did, I probably shouldn't eat it. Because it might offend a non-believer. It might give you the wrong decision, like idea. He says, no, just go ahead and eat it. It was given to you in grace. It was given to you, you know, from a person who wanted to do, do nice by you, wanted to bless you. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. So really what we're looking at here is somebody who's a non-believer says, okay, this guy's a Christian. Maybe he won't, maybe he doesn't want to have this meat because it's from the market. So I want to make sure I don't step on his toes. Let me just be, be cool and tell him where it came from and let him decide. And if that's the case, he says, not based on your own conscience, but on the conscience of that person who mentioned it, go ahead and abstain from it. Knowing that it doesn't really matter, that the food that comes out of the marketplace is neither holy or unholy, it's just food, do not act as though it matters. If someone else acts like it matters, at that point you're responsible to consider, to consider the potential impact that your actions might make on someone else. Now, can this go too far? It absolutely can go too far. 
And we saw an example of this just a couple of weeks ago at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting in Tennessee. There was one refrain that seemed, I didn't get the memo, but it seemed like everybody who got up to the pulpit or the, the lectern was using the same thing, same saying over and over again as we discussed important stuff that either needed to be passed as a resolution in the SBC or not passed. And that refrain, refrain was, the world is watching. Remember, the world is watching us. We've got to make careful decisions about our resolutions because we don't want the world to get offended at what we're doing because if they get offended, then we won't be able to bring the gospel to them. So it was framed in such a way that it looked like in order for the gospel message to be useful to someone, they have to like you. They have to be on your team, in a sense, in order for the gospel message to come across. And here's where that was particularly disturbing. You know that in 2019, a resolution was put on the floor to affirm critical race theory as a tool, subordinate to Scripture, but useful to the spread of the gospel and justice issues in the world. And then as people began to study what CRT really is, we begin to see the, the devastating impact that it can have on churches and cultures, that it is an ideology that by its very definition must separate people that must make winners and losers and does not see people as all equal in the image of God. And so we were very hopeful that this year at the convention that the messengers would affirm some kind of a resolution which would undo the damage, potential damage, that uh, Resolution 9 from 2019 did to the convention. Unfortunately, what we saw instead was this, Resolution 2, which is by itself a great resolution but a resolution that ignores the context of what the convention's actually going through right now. The basic language of Resolution 2 is, we as Southern Baptists denote any kind of ideology, any kind of worldview, any kind of analytical tool that is not in accord with the Scriptures or that would in some way try to usurp the Scriptures and authority. And never once did they mention critical race theory. They didn't call it by its name. They were so afraid that there might be some people still in the convention that are loving critical race theory or have bought into the lie that if they said no to critical race theory, then they were going to be saying no to those people and people would get offended and you'd have a split. So instead of calling sin what it is, they just said, we just don't like sin at all. It's just all not like sin. They kept it very basic because they didn't want to offend. They needed to address the cancer specifically and instead, they gave a vitamin C pill to the SBC and said, I hope you get better soon. What is the world watching, friends? That's the question we need to ask. The world is watching us as a convention. The world is watching our church. What, is that, what are they watching us do? What are they watching us say? What are they watching us value? They're watching a group of people, unfortunately at that convention, who are too afraid of the court of public opinion to actually be who they are. And that is a tragedy, friends. So pray for the convention. We're very, very torn over what we saw unfold and progress needs to be made in the positive. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience is what Paul argues against this idea that we should allow others to always dictate what we do or do not do. We cannot become prisoners to another man's conscience. This is what Dr. R.C. Sproul has called the tyranny of the weaker conscience. So consideration does not equal subordination. We must be sensitive to the needs of others, but we cannot let them become king over us because they are easily offended or because there are differences in opinion. We must 
refuse to give up what is important. But when it comes to our freedoms or things that don't really matter, we should be willing to let them go. Nevertheless, if we want to exercise our freedoms in a way that is pleasing to the one who set us free, we'll make a faithful effort to avoid unnecessary offense. We will refuse to tear down a brother. And I'm short on time, so let me just rip through this last one pretty quickly. One last qualifying question. Will this expression, will this potential decision I want to make, choice I want to make, will this expression of freedom glorify God? Will it glorify Him? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I want to mention that any other filter that we could come up with, including the two I mentioned earlier, all of those filters are subordinate to this most important filter. We are made to glorify God in everything. Whatever we say or do must glorify the Lord in our lives. This sounds a little obsessive, doesn't it? Because it is. It should be a bit obsessive. For the Christian, remember, life is not aimless for the Christian. We're not still trying to figure out what our purpose is here. We've been given our purpose. We know why we exist now. It is a race run with a goal in mind. Remember, just a couple of weeks ago, the upward call that Christ might be exalted and the lost might know Him should dominate everything about our lives. And we must become disciplined at staying focused on those most important things. We've got to keep the radical nature of this commitment in view, not only in our own lives, but as we share the gospel to others. It is so tempting, friends, to make the scope of salvation seem smaller so that people are more prone to embrace it. If Christianity is not that big of a deal, then more people will, oh yeah, I'll become a Christian if it doesn't mess up my weekends and I can still talk the way I want to talk and... I don't have to break up with my girlfriend that I'm living with, do I? People will be more prone to embrace a Christianity that is less Christian. And too many churches are willing to dangle that carrot and say, just say a prayer and come with us. And if you want to be here every once in a while, that's great. But here's the problem. If you've won them to something other than true salvation, something less than the gospel, then they're still vulnerable to hell. They're still subject to death and judgment even though they might now think that they are safe. You have done them immeasurable damage. You have looked at their cracked and soaked foundation and all the evidence that it's about to come crumbling down, and you have said, nope, looks good to me. There you go. You are safe. Is it possible to do all things to the glory of God? It is not. We sang, I surrender all, a moment ago. That's an idealistic song. It's a song worth singing because it should be our aim. But you cannot do all things to the glory of God. In fact, when you look at the options that might be available to you in your freedoms, such as the Corinthians should have done, you should see very clearly, I cannot sin to the glory of God. I can't. You can't do something that breaks God's law and say, I'm doing this to the glory of God. You're lying to yourself and to the Lord if you think so. So you do have freedom, Christian. But you're not free to sin because your freedom is rooted in your love for God who is love and truth and who hates sin. So I've run across some Christians before who love getting high on the weekends and they say, you know what, I take these drugs, I feel closer to Jesus than I ever feel. Uh, It just gives me a different plane of understanding. And they take their LSD or their mescaline or whatever. They do it to the glory of God, they think, because they're hoping from some greater spiritual experience. They're getting an experience, all right. 
And it might be spiritual in nature, but it's going to lead to a very, very humbling experience if they don't bow themselves to Christ and trust his truth. You can't love someone that you are not married to in an intimate way and say, I'm doing this to the glory of the Lord. It's love, right? We, we intend to get married one day. We'll probably do. No, you can't. You can't redefine the boundaries that God has set for us. You can't love someone of the same gender in an intimate way. Even if you're monogamous, even if you try to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit towards that person because it goes directly against the command of the God that you are saying you are trying to glorify. We don't glorify God by throwing His precepts in the trash and living how we want to live. That's how you insult God. That is the enemy to the kingdom of God. And so we take a careful look at our lives this morning. For those of us who count Christ as our King, we ask, am I doing all that I do in such a way that my words, my attitudes, my actions bring glory to God? Do you work to the glory of God? You have a boss at work, but you actually have two. The one who signed your paycheck and the one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Are you obeying and glorifying Him in the workplace so that your true character comes out not just in your Sunday morning activities, but all the time? Do you exercise your free time to the glory of God, the things that you watch? You know, if you were to hand your device over to your neighbor today and say, check my history, what would they find? Would they find you glorifying the Lord? And maybe all that they would find is a bunch of things that we would consider neutral. But if there's no Lord there, if there's, there's no inquiry into how good God is and what His glory is like, we should be embarrassed about that. We should desire to glorify the Lord in our free time. Do you sleep to the glory of God? This might sound like a strange question, but I know people who don't sleep and should sleep more. They're so busy, busy, busy. They've got so many good things to do but they're always half of a person because they're never rested well enough to actually worship the Lord God, to slow down, to think carefully about Him. They're just so on fire. And there are others that just sleep all the time. There's a, a lost world out there. There is a God to worship and glorify and serve, and they just, they're content to just nap the day away. Do we sleep to the glory of God? Do we rest in the glory of God? And we're doing that right now in the Lord's day. Is this the day that you set aside to truly just rest in the Lord? Are you grateful for the conversations that you look forward to having with your brothers and sisters when you get together at church and after? Are you listening to sermons and rejoicing and gathering together to go through catechisms and to learn new songs? Are you grateful for what God has called you to do in the Lord's day? Are you glorifying Him in the way you spend your time? Do you serve to the glory of God. Not in such a way that you're begrudging about it, that you do it because you feel obligated, but is there joy in your heart for it? Because we are to serve Him. We are to give Him back those things that He has blessed us with. We're going to be talking about spiritual gifts here soon. So we need to know that those are things God has given to us, that we might use them for the benefit of the church, but we should use them knowing they're glorifying God. We should be getting joy from that sacrifice and from that gift. Do you reason to the glory of God? Is he the object of your curiosities? What do you think about all day long? Not just what comes out of your mouth, but what stays in here. Are you marveling at how holy and different God is from any other thing that you could put your gaze upon? The conclusion of this passage will flow into the materials that we're going to cover next week, so I'm only going to touch on it briefly here. This life that is wholly devoted to the glory of our God is so very different than what we see on display around us in the lost world. So it is a very good thing, a very good thing, that God has not left us without examples. 
Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God in verse 32. Just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that you may be saved or that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It is a huge blessing that God has put into our lives men and women who express their faith in ways that are thoughtful, that are teaching us how to be better Christians. Be grateful to the Lord for the men and women that he's put in your path that have given you insight that you didn't find on your own, that have allowed their story to become clear to you so you could see their failures. They weren't stingy with it. They didn't try to pick, point a picture of themselves, paint a picture of themselves that was perfect and flawless, but instead, to your benefit, they showed you where they failed. They confessed their sins to you. They helped you to understand that we, as Christians, all need Christ and need to grow in him. Be thankful for people like the Apostle Paul who refused to let prison or abandonment or shipwreck dissuade him from the calling that God had placed upon his life. Just as I, says Paul, try to please God in all that I do, not seeking my own advantage so that many people might be saved, so too I'm hoping that others will see this and grab hold of it. And so let us find those good examples in our lives, those people who live for the glory of God. Let us pay close attention to them and let us live in such a way that one day maybe God would use us as an example to someone else, that as people see us following Christ, that they might desire to follow him as well. And the only way that we can live like that, friends, is if God radically changes our heart perspective. We are not benevolent in a pure way apart from God redeeming us and freeing us from the self-centric life that we are so naturally prone to live. But praise God for the direction of brothers like the Apostle Paul who have helped us to understand how to be more faithful to the Lord and to live in the excellent way of Christian love. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your holy grace and for the ways that you have strengthened us and protected us. You are the chief shepherd and we have great confidence, Lord, that you're keeping the wolves away, that you are feeding us well, Lord, that you are bringing us to good pastures, but we also know that life is not easy, nor is a simple path promised to us. Help us, despite the complexity of issues, such as offending brothers and sisters or such as how we might spend all of our time, Lord God, Help us to trust you even as we make these decisions in our lives. We need you, Lord God. We trust that you are good and holy and that even when we stumble in these things, you will forgive us. We are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess them to you. And so we praise you for your great promises and ask that you bless us now through the observance of the sacrament of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.